Have you ever tried to switch off from the digital world? No internet, no mobile phone, no calls, texts, gaming, and have you wondered why it failed? Reporter Adelaide Ung speaks to digital wellbeing advocate and neuroproductivity speaker Dr. Kirsty Goodwin, who explores the fascinating relationship between our digital habits, biology, and mental health. As professionals in the fast-paced world of tourism and events, we know the importance of maintaining focus and productivity. But that's become increasingly challenging due to our growing dependence on computers and phones, blurring the boundaries between work and personal life. We do already know this, but the impact of our digital habits go a lot deeper than we might think. If you've been following addiction experts, you may have heard them likening smartphones to modern-day hypodermic needles, delivering quick hits of dopamine through attention, validation, and distraction. We've become a generation addicted to stimulation, unable to be alone with our thoughts or concentrate on important tasks. In other words, we're forever interrupting ourselves, and this can have a huge impact on our focus and productivity. As someone who grapples with an avalanche of browser tabs and apps open across some 20 Chrome and Safari windows, don't laugh or roll your eyeballs, I know at least one of you listening is like me. I recognize full well the pain of trying to keep up with everything that involves a screen. My guest today says digital detoxes are not the answer. So what is? In this eye-opening two-part episode with Dr. Christy Goodwin, we explore some fascinating insights and practical ideas addressing this issue. Dr. Christy Goodwin is a digital well-being and neuroproductivity speaker whose new book is Dear Digital, We Need to Talk a guilt-free guide to taming your tech habits and thriving in a distracted world. Here's part one, and I do apologize for the quality of my voice as I was still recovering from the flu when this was recorded. Christy Goodwin, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're able to join us. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. I just love your book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. I do think many of us are looking for solutions to have a better relationship with our screen life. But more than that, there seems to be an urgency in your message that says our digital habits are actually slowly killing us. Or is that too dramatic? I think our tech habits are having a profound impact on us physically, psychologically, from a productivity and performance perspective. Whether we could necessarily say they're killing us, that might be a bit of a a quantum leap, but they are most certainly having a detrimental and a profound impact on us in, in often very subtle, but often very powerful ways. So yes, I agree. There is an urgency with this message. The harsh reality is, you know, depends on the relationship you have with tech. Some of us love it, some of us loathe it, some of us oscillate during the day between those two extremes. The reality is that it's here to stay. It's not a fad, it's not a phase. Technology is going to play an integral part in our personal lives, in our professional lives moving forwards. So I think now we're at a juncture in time where we need to really forge healthy relationships with technology. And I think we have to take back our power. We have to be in control of the technology, not the other way around where it dictates and determines how we spend our time and our attention. Well, I can't tell you how timely this conversation is for me. I love technology, probably a little bit too much. I go down way too many rabbit holes. (laughs) I had 
just begun thinking how unmanageable my life had become after everything shifted through COVID. And it's been exacerbated by my bad digital habits. I'm fully aware of them, but I can't help myself at the same time. And I've been tempted to think maybe I do need a digital detox, but you say digital detoxes aren't the answer. So why do you say that? And then what is the answer? Yes. So I I think we need to acknowledge that many of us are experiencing what I colloquially refer to as the digital hangover. I think COVID, lockdowns, you know, a global pandemic made us in many instances develop some unhealthy digital dependencies and digital habits. And I think we're now seeing the sort of cascading long-term impacts of some of those habits. I think with the way that people are now often working with distributed teams, our reliance on technology is going to continue. So I know a lot of people think, well, a pragmatic, realistic solution is to do a digital detox. And the research actually tells us that digital detoxes do not work. They do not work in terms of creating long-term sustainable digital habits and behaviours. A bit like a juice cleanse or any sort of extreme diet that you might go on, similar to sort of a detox, it often creates a binge and a purge cycle. So if I do a detox, a digital detox for a couple of days, I often come back Monday morning after my digital detox weekend and I have a bulging inbox. I have, you know, thousands of unread DMs and notifications. And so it can create that binge and purge cycle. The other reason that I say that digital detoxes don't necessarily work is because a study examined what happened and they had a control group and they had another experimental group and they had one group go on at what would be considered a detox. They removed social media, they had no access for a period of time. The other group in comparison just reduced their social media use by an hour a day. They measured the groups at the end and there were quite profound differences in terms of their report, self-reports of well-being in the the extra time that they had available. What was really fascinating was that at the end of the study, about four months after, so the study wasn't continuing, people were told to go about your business as usual. What was really clear from the the four-month post-intervention sort of follow-up was that the group that had the one-hour reduction per day continued to have better habits around their tech use, whereas the group that did the hardcore digital detox refrained from using their technology actually reverted back to their old habits. So it goes to show, I think, that it's all about, and and this is what I, I really love talking about with the clients that I work with, it's not about doing a radical overhaul because I don't think many of us could achieve that. You know, I think it's a real luxury for anybody to be able to unplug for a few days or a week. You know, unless you've got somebody else managing your digital life, we need technology. So I think it's a real reminder that we need to apply micro habits, just small little tweaks, small little adjustments to how we use technology so we can tame our tech habits, not the other way around where we're a slave to our screen. I I love how your tips are all about making this work for you long term. It's something that is sustainable, but also there's so much in your book about the relationship between digital consumption and our physiology and our neurology, all this fascinating stuff that, you know, I never knew. What do you think most people would be surprised and pretty gobsmacked to know? Yeah, so I shared this at a conference yesterday and I had so many people come up and talk to me afterwards. And again, it's a reminder that our tech habits are impacting us in really subtle but powerful ways. So there is a condition that has been studied called email apnea. And it's this idea that when we go into our inboxes, we often hold our breaths, literally. We... (gasps) 
gasp. We often dump a whole lot of cortisol. Our heart rate accelerates. Our pupils dilate. We have a physiological response to our inboxes. And so this elevates our stress response. A fascinating study was done a couple of years ago, and they looked at what happens when we're looking at a screen, be that a smartphone, a desktop, a laptop, whatever sort of screen we're looking at. What this study showed was that our sigh rate drops significantly when we're looking at a screen. Now, as humans, we naturally, while we're awake, sigh roughly every five minutes. It's a a natural biological buffer to help us counter stress. It's our body's way of regulating our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. So we do it, often we're unaware that we're doing it, and we do it roughly every five minutes as a way to sort of calm us down. However, when we're looking at our screen, we don't sigh anywhere near as much. What does this tell us? We're often breathing in a really shallow way. We're often in a really heightened, stressed state. And yet we spend hours of our days now on our devices. Another really profound thing that's impacting us, and again, we're often unaware, but it's having a profound impact on our physiology and our psychology, is that when we have a very narrow gaze, when we're looking at a screen, our eyes converge. This sends a message to our brain that we are under stress. Why? Because as humans, we are biologically designed to dilate our gaze. We are designed to look at things in the distance. We're not biologically designed to have a constant close view. And not only is this having an impact on our eyesight, um, we are seeing rates of myopia increase. And there's other reasons for that, in particular, our our lack of sunlight because we're inside on our screens. But it's also, again, a biological message to our body that we are under possible threat. We are stressed because when we're constantly in that close gaze, it is our body's way of saying we need to merge all our resources. There is a potential danger or stressor approaching us. Let's have a very narrow gaze. When we're just, as humans, designed to spend more of our time looking at things further away. So they're the two big ones, I think, that we just don't even recognize, but they're having a profound impact on us. It's so interesting because none of us were thinking about these things during COVID, of course. And I remember doing almost eight hours of Zoom back to back in one day. (laughs) You would have been exhausted. It was. I was exhausted and it was probably one of my least productive days right at the end. And I had to take the whole of the next day just to recover from that. (laughs) If I could, not that I even had the option because I had more Zoom meetings, but um It's a fascinating conversation because I do remember speaking to different people and there was a strong group of people who were thinking that, hey, now that, you know, we know that we can conduct these Zoom meetings and actually convert sales, high level sales, just from a phone call or from Zoom meetings, that's going to spell the end of in-person meetings. And, you know, this is an events podcast. The events industry was, of course, horrified. And they say there's nothing yeah. that's, that's going to replace in-person events. But you're giving so much of that science to the argument for in-person events. I love this conversation. And I love, you know, how we are meant for connection and that physical yeah. connection. And I don't think anything can replace that. So even that 60 centimeter conversation, I think is what you call that distance <laughs> between yourself and the screen. There's so much to that and you explore all of that in your book even further. So this is fascinating. Can I just jump in there? I I totally agree. Nothing beats human connection. And the research tells us this. A really interesting study compared text-based communication, so writing an SMS or sending a DM or 
conversing on social media to in-person conversations. And what the study clearly showed is that our body does not produce anywhere near as much oxytocin, which is the social bonding or the love hormone we sometimes call it, when we do text-based communications. When we are with real people in real time in a real room, we make that that social bonding hormone. That's why we found lockdown so hard. We, we didn't get that opportunity, you know, unless it, it was the Uber Eats person coming to your door and standing the appropriate distance away. We really didn't, apart from our partners and pets, have much. And we looked forward so much to the oh, <laughs> driver arriving without me. One, one, one of my children noticed that I had a, um, I had a FedEx delivery and I was doing a fair bit of online shopping as many of us did. And I got to know the FedEx delivery person because there was always just one driver so well. And I was always up for a chat. One of my kids said, why do you talk to that poor man so much? (laughs) And it made me realize I was craving that oxytocin, being trapped in a house with three boys, a a pet and a husband that was conveniently deemed an essential worker. (laughs) There was not much (laughs) other opportunity for oxytocin. The other really interesting thing with that study is that it showed that text-based communications actually increases our cortisol, our stress response. Wow. And so we, we, I think we all instinctively know this, that, you know, when you were talking before that 60 centimetre rule, it's this idea that when we sit 60 centimetres away from our Zoom meeting or our Teams meeting, it's what social anthropologists call our intimate social distance. That space is traditionally, you know, 60 centimetres around our body is traditionally reserved for cuddling, comforting, lovemaking, wrestling, tackling. But all of a sudden, you're 60 centimetres away from a potential client, from a colleague. And so our brain is getting these sort of stress responses and we find video calls so fatiguing. We're not imagining it. Brain scans have actually shown that fatigue sets in at around that 30 to 40 minute mark. You don't get that at a real event with real people in real time. Adelaide Ung there with Dr Kirsty Goodwin. To hear the extended interview, go to Adelaide's podcast, Upon Arrival.